You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We're going to try to cover quite a bit today, so we're going to try to get right into it. Um, I'd like to cover the remainder of um, chapter 4 today. We finished with verse 20 last week, and um, specifically we looked at verses 17 through 20, and we were talking about the change that's supposed to take place in our life to where we no longer live like Gentiles do. The impact the gospel has, that salvation has in our life, moves us away from living uh, like the Gentiles do. And so he had started the chapter talking a lot about the unity that we experience, the giftings that we have, um, how we use these things for the mutual upbuilding of each other. And then last week we saw that uh, we're to be different than how the Gentiles walk, that we're no longer darkened in our understanding, we're no longer alienated from the life of God, we no longer have hard hearts that are insensitive to God's Word, that um, we should be living in a different way, in a way that's contrary to how the world lives, and particularly because of what we've learned about Christ, verse 20 tells us. And so we talked about kind of as a way of application to think through how do Gentiles live, and then how should we live in response to that, how should we be different uh, we talked about submitting our minds to God's word, that ultimately that's where the change takes place, is God changing the way that we think, which then leads to a change in the ways that we act as well. And so let's look at, um, we'll start in verse 20, and we're going to read down through uh, verse 32, which will be our uh, big large text for today. It says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members uh, members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil." Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for the building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And so we talked last week about how we're to be different, kind of the old way of doing things, the ways that we used to live. Today we look at the new way of doing things. What does it mean for us to live differently from the Gentile world? So as a summary sentence, let's look at it today together. As Christians, our salvation involves us being transformed from an old way of living to a new way of living with clear evidence of our salvation being seen in our commitment to truth, forgiveness, generosity, and wholesome speech. As Christians, our salvation involves us being transformed from an old way of living to a new way of living, with clear evidence of our salvation being seen in our commitment to truth, forgiveness, generosity, and wholesome speech. For our kids, Christians should be known for truth, forgiveness, generosity, and helpful words. Now, the list of things that Paul's going to list for us here in this chapter are not all inclusive. This isn't the only ways that we live differently than the Gentile world, but these are specific ways that he gives to us. And I think he even intentionally chooses the things that he does 
because of how they tie into our relationships with each other. So thinking back into the context of how he's writing, he's talking about how we live in unity as a church body, that we, we live together, we serve each other, we use our gifts towards each other. And so I think it's uh, you know, interesting to note that the things that he then turns his attention to as to how we're to live differently are all kind of tied back to the ways that we interact with each other. That we interact with each other in, in we interact with each other in truthful ways, um, in ways that are generous towards each other, in ways that are forgiving and reconciling towards each other. Um, they're very relational. Uh, the things that he calls our attention to for how we're supposed to live. I think too, it's important to note that um, Paul's really showing us a dividing line from how we live before Christ and then how we live after Christ. Think about how our calendar works, right? That's a, that's a dividing point in, in human history, in world history, where we trace things as to what they were like before Christ and then things after Christ. We do that in our Bibles. We have the Old Testament, the New Testament. Christ is that dividing line between how things used to be and then how things were post-Christ. And so that's true for our, our own individual lives as well. He ought to be the dividing line for us in our lives. Uh, the ways that we walked before Christ, the ways that we walked after Christ. And even when we're sharing our testimonies or as you go through the membership process and you're uh, sharing with the elders, like your understanding of the gospel, we talk about what was your life like before Christ? What was your life like after Christ? That dividing line of how we used to live and now how we ought to live. We're going to see here in this text um, through the, let's see, through down through 24, verse 24. Um, that he's going to talk a lot about the framework of the gospel, the old life, new life concept, and then he's going to show us from 25 down through 32 some immediate application points for us. So kind of big picture stuff. Here's what the gospel means. Here's how it shapes us from old life to new life. And then verses 25 through 32, here's practically how that should look in our life on a daily basis. He's going to talk about replacing sinful habits with righteous and holy habits. Um, we're going to see negative, and I'm going to try to show this to you for each one of these points that comes in verse 25 and following. What's the negative sinful action? What are we supposed to replace it with? What's that positive holy action that we're supposed to be doing? And then he also includes a theological reason for why we should do this. Why is he calling us to move away from falsehood to truth? Uh, Why is he calling us to do things with our anger? Why is he calling us not to steal, but to to work intentionally? So we're going to see kind of the theological reason for why Paul calls us to these different types of attitudes and actions as well. But before we jump into the text, I think it's important to note too, because we've already talked in Ephesians about the the spiritual, spiritual realm, the angelic realm that's kind of looking in on the gospel in our life, how the gospel is transforming us and changing us. And we talked about how we ought to be living in such a way, unified in such a way where angels look on in amazement and maybe even demons look on in frustration at at how Christ is ruling and reigning um, and how his supremacy is being seen. And we return to that idea here in this uh, section because it talks about in verse 27, um, how we handle our anger has spiritual ramifications for opportunities given to the devil. Right? We don't always think about that. We don't always think about that what we do with our anger has spiritual uh, warfare-type implications in our life. Right? That if we don't do what we're supposed to do with our anger, it, it opens the door wider for the enemy to have a foothold in our life. 
You, f- you fast forward even a little bit further down. It talks in verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Meaning that the corrupting talk or the types of words that we choose to use in our engagement with each other, it shapes the emotional feelings of the Holy Spirit and how he's at work in our life. And are we um, partnering with him or working against him in the words that we choose to use? Like this is bigger than just what did you do last week and what are you planning to do this week? I mean, there's, there's spiritual implications for our actions and our attitudes and our choices. Uh, we're either giving, uh, giving ground to, to Satan and his forces um, we're potentially working against the Holy Spirit or we're partnering with the Holy Spirit in choosing to do some of these things. And so we'll kind of see some of that as we work through the text um, today as well. And so, you know, we want to we kind of have that mindset as we work through it, though. Are we creating opportunities for the devil to work or are we working against the Holy Spirit's desire to mature us? Um, how are we aligning ourselves with the gospel? So let's start again by looking at the text in verse 21. Um, he's said that we've learned Christ differently, uh, to not live like the Gentiles, to not be calloused and hard-hearted. Um, that's not the way that we learned Christ. And then he says in verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him, assuming that you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, assuming that you've heard these things, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, I'm assuming that you've heard these things. I'm assuming that you've been educated in these things. Now, some of these people he knows they have because he would have been there to teach it to them directly. But he's vacated that area. He's entrusted other people to pass on truth to the people that have then come to be a part of the church since he's departed. And so he's assuming that what he had previously taught is continuing to be taught. And so our first point this morning is that we need to remember the gospel call at salvation. We need to remember the gospel call at salvation. The things that he's talking about here aren't necessarily things that we are supposed to do application-wise. These are things that really have already been done to us if we're a true Christian. Uh, that the old self has been taken off, the new self has been put on, and that we're to remember these things, assuming that we've been taught correctly about these things, to remember the gospel call it salvation, to, to remember that we've been retrained, is what the text is alluding to here. Assuming that you've heard about him. Really, the, the literal transra- tra- translation is, assuming you have heard him. There is no preposition in the, in the Greek language. That's just kind of inserted for reading purposes. But really, the, the literal translation is, you have heard him. Now, none of us can say that we, we have heard Christ directly, right? That comes through the speaking and teaching of his word. But because he's an active and living Savior, not dead, not in the tomb, we can say that even through human speakers who expound upon God's word, that we hear directly from Jesus. He's alive and well. He's ruling and reigning. And Paul says, assuming you've heard him, assuming you've heard the call of him upon your life, you know that to live like the Gentiles is inconsistent with the gospel. Remember your Christ-centered education. We'll go to Colossians chapter 2, and I've told you before there's a lot of parallels in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 6, look what it says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, 
just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving, that Christ-centered education, you have heard of Christ, you have been informed of the gospel, um, assuming that you have. And this would be a call to us to examine our faith, to make sure that we have heard truth that's found here in the gospels, found here in God's word, right? Because we've already seen we don't want to be people that are tossed to and fro by every wave of doctrine and deceitful uh, teaching, and those are certainly out there. And some of you may have been rescued out of some of that previously. Um, but assuming that you have heard the gospel, assuming that you've heard accurately the things of God, you know that we're called to something different. We've been taught through the gospel that to continue living as a Gentile after salvation is not acceptable or possible. We see this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, if we say we have fellowship with him while walking like the Gentiles do, we lie. We do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I put in my notes, a person who makes a profession of faith but makes no effort to break with worldly sinful habits has every reason to doubt their salvation. A person who makes a profession of faith and yet makes no effort to break free from the worldly sinful habits that they were in before the gospel came to them, they shouldn't be confident in their salvation. First John 2, 4 says, Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We can't forget the gospel. We can't forget the call that was placed upon us when the gospel came to us. And that was the gospel invitation that, that we were dead in our sins. We needed forgiveness and Jesus extends that to us. But by extending that to us, he's calling us to a life of submission to him. He's calling us to follow him. In Christ, we avoid that downward spiral that we've been seeing in Ephesians of being calloused in our hearts and darkened in our understanding, futile in our thinking. We avoid that downward spiral. We receive tenderness and light that's granted to us. So we can't forget the gospel call that was placed upon us at salvation the need that we have for the gospel. Um, I've talked with you over the past two years, I guess, about um, Joshua Harris and his fall from being a pastor to no longer claiming to be a Christian and have really wrestled with like where, where, how he got to the point that he's at. And I, I listened to a fascinating podcast this week where there was an interview done between Christianity Today with him. And I don't know how much you know about his background and his past, but as a pastor, he was kind of thrust into the limelight pretty early, pretty young. Um, he reached superstar status in Christianity uh, through a book that he wrote before he was even 20 years old, and that kind of cast all kinds of attention upon him. He becomes a super pastor, basically, where he is just known uh, through, through the media world of podcasts and sermon clips and whatnot being you know portrayed. And all that kind of came crumbling down in the mid, I guess, somewhere around 2013, 2014 maybe, where there was accusations made about mishandlings in the church when it came to abuse and uh, things that were quieted and kind of uh, swept under the rug where he probably had a lot more responsibility of bringing some of that forth. 
Uh, it's also at that point where, think about how social media, social media really starts to, uh, to take off after the iPhone and some of these other things come about where all of a sudden, things that he had written in the past, the books that he had written, all of a sudden his critics come out of the woodworks and are able to portray harm and hurt that came from them trying to follow some of the things that he wrote. And as I'm listening to him do this interview, what I begin to hear him talk about is how he kind of crumpled under the pressure of critics and naysayers kind of coming at him about his ministry and his work and really began to feel like a failure. Um, And he retracts from Christianity, runs from Christianity, runs from the gospel, runs from Jesus, and identifies now as somebody who doesn't doesn't you know call himself a Christian. And it's interesting because the guy who was doing the interview kind of called him out on it. And he said, Josh, he said, I, I see what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. I understand your, your plight as far as like feeling guilty for, for how some of these other people's lives have turned out due to your failures. Um, he said, but he said something that just really stuck out to me. He said, you should be running to the gospel and not away from it. He said, you have abandoned Christ and abandoned the gospel because you have failed in some of these areas. And he said, the gospel message is that we run to him in our failures, not away from him. We run to him in our failures. And that just really stuck to me because, uh, you know, I hadn't really fully grasped why he had wandered from the faith until listening to this interview. Like it just really jumped out at me. Man, this guy feels like a failure when he was put on a pedestal to be a spiritual leader for so many. And he finds out through social media kickback that he has failed in leading people to life and, and, and the joys of the gospel, and now he's fleeing from it. And, and really, he needs to be running to it, running to it. Now he's living like the Gentile world, and he should still be separated from it because that's the gospel call upon our life. And so my encouragement to us today would be to remember that gospel call at salvation, that we've been retrained, that our minds have been submitted to Christ and educated about what he calls us to be. Number two, we've been reclothed. We've been reclothed. The old self has been taken off and the new self has been put on. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. I told you that we don't necessarily understand this as something that we're supposed to do today. This is something that's been done to us past tense if we're Christians. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. You have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. It's real similar language that he's using here. He even identifies some of the same things in, in the letter to the people at Coloss that he's saying in the book of Ephesians, things that we should put away, things that we should no longer do. But he ties it to the fact that we have put off our old self. We have put on our new self. These are things that happen to us when we get saved. We've been reclothed. It's happened already, and yet what we're seeing is that we have to apply this on a daily basis to these individual acts of sin that have to be removed from our life. He's saying you were taught to put off the old self. You've been renewed to put on the new self. Your old way of life was shaped by deceit. You were tricked into believing that life was to be lived by desires only, and your new life is shaped by truth. Your minds are being transformed to see life and purpose as defined by the Creator. We're no longer living for the passions of our desires and deceit, Ephesians tells us. 
Instead, we're living out the truth that's given to us in Christ. It's our old former way of life that was corrupt through deceitful desires. We're being renewed in the spirit of our minds now to put on this new self that's uh, tied to the truth that's in Jesus. See what your old life is and put it off. It's part of the old way. It's corrupt through deceitful desires. See what your new life is supposed to be and put it on. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. This is where we talked last week about um, submitting our minds regularly to God's word, that it has to be more than just the time that we come here on a Sunday, that our minds aren't going to be shaped and changed for a week's time, you know, until we come again, if that's the only time that we're in God's word. We have this, uh, what we tell our football players um, before, before a game day. So like we had practice last Wednesday, we were playing on Thursday. We told them, we said, guys, what you eat today and what you drink today is what you're going to be using as fuel tomorrow in the game. Like, you can't wait till tomorrow to try to fuel yourself properly. It starts even today. Like, it really starts with the whole week. What you're eating and drinking is going to shape how well you can play on Thursday based on the nutrients that you're giving your body. It's the same with us spiritually. We can't expect to, to think the right way and do the right thing unless we're filling our minds properly with his word. Like, when we get into... Uh, high tense situations. We're, gonna, we're not going to express faith in Christ like we should if we're not spending time in God's word. I put in my notes, the primary means of ongoing transformation and the prerequisite for other methods being effective in our life is our intentional exposure to God's word and the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts through that truth to set our minds on heavenly perspectives. Let me say that again. The primary means of ongoing transformation and the prerequisite for any other method being effective is our intentional exposure to God's word and the working of the Holy Spirit in our hearts through that truth to set our minds on heavenly perspectives. What does that mean? It means that if we're going to be different, if we're going to be different than the lost world, it starts with us taking God's word and filling our minds with it. Now, God uses trials. He uses relationships. He uses other methods to shape us and to change us but those things are only as effective still as the time that we're placing ourselves into God's word, right? Trials are not going to be effective in our life unless we've been immersing ourselves in God's word so that our minds are set on heavenly things. Otherwise, the trials are going to be such that we grumble and complain through them, right? The time that we spend in God's word directly affects the transformation that we're going to see. If we want to be like Christ, if we want to be different than the Gentile world, then it starts with having our minds reprogrammed. It starts with our minds being renewed, which means we have to make conscious, intentional effort to spend time knowing God through his word. You've been reclothed. Number three, you've been recreated. You've been recreated. He says, you've been renewed by the spirit of your minds to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Assuming you have heard these things, assuming you've been exposed to these things, this is what you've been told. Your old self has been put off. Your old manner of life is to be put away. The deceitful desires are to be done with. You're to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, putting on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. We're being remade into what we were created to be. We're being re-imaged after righteousness and holiness. This is who you're supposed to be like, him. We're set free from the orientation towards sin. No longer are we bent towards sin, but we're bent towards righteousness. We're not perfect, but man, we are bent towards doing the right thing. We're bent towards following him now because the Holy Spirit indwells us. 
This is what salvation's all about. It's about being sinful and rebellious, being forgiven and justified, and then being changed to good works, right? We saw this earlier in Ephesians 2. We're saved for good works. And so, man, I would challenge all of us. I would challenge our young people that are sitting here listening that you were called to salvation to be different than the Gentiles, to live differently than the lost world. That's what you signed up for when you agreed to the gospel. That's what you signed up for when you submitted yourself to Jesus. Not just to have your sins forgiven, but to be radically changed to live differently. Radically changed to live differently. And it starts in verse 25, this way that we're to understand living different. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. This first thing that he mentions to us is to be known for our commitment to truth. Be known for your commitment to truth. He gives us the sinful action to replace. He gives us the positive action or the holy action to install. And he gives us a theological reason for doing so. He tells us to put away falsehood, to be done with it, to get rid of it. Why? Because lying is rooted with Satan. John 8, talks about him being the father of lies, that, that lying and deceit and falsehood is rooted in Satan. And we're to put that away from our life. We're to be done with it. Instead, we're to speak truth with each other. We're to speak truth about each other when we're with each other, right? So there's, I think there's two aspects, and I love the, the way that it's worded here in the English language for us. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, right? And so for me, again, that, that carries the idea that if I'm with you, I'm, I'm being truthful with you. Like my interaction with you is truthful. But as I'm with you, I'm also being truthful with you about other people, Right? That protects me from being a gossip or a slanderer because I'm, I'm only communicating truth not only about me and about our situation and, and our interaction and our fellowship, but I'm also being truthful about other people. I'm not bringing deceit or lies or falsehood so that you would then think negatively of other people. We speak truth with each other and about each other while we're with each other. Zechariah, this, is, this really kind of ties itself back to the Old Testament and seemingly a quote that Paul is using from Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. Look what it says. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another and love no false oath for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. We speak truth with each other. Why? Because we're members of the same body. You can't have the unity that Paul talks about earlier in Ephesians if there's dishonesty taking place in our relationships. I put in my notes, we should be known by others as truth tellers, people who tell the truth, because by telling the truth, we imitate God. When we lie, we imitate Satan, and there's no place for lying in the Christian life. Now, we all sit here and we affirm this. Like None of us would sit here and say, I'm going to need more proof of that, Adam. I'm not sure. I'm not convinced. Right? Like we, don't, we, don't, we don't hear this and think, yeah, I don't know. Like some of us disagree on this. Some people think lying is okay for a Christian. Right? Like we, don't, we, don't, we don't hear this and think that maybe there needs to be more evidence. Right? But sometimes we don't readily apply it to ourselves. Um, we don't necessarily uh, move in a direction of calling out the falsehood in our life that needs to be called out. I also put in my notes here that uh, the pressures to gain advantages and to avoid consequences 
will always tempt us to lie. I'll say that again. The pressures to gain advantages and to avoid consequences will always tempt us to lie. I had to call this fourth grader out into the hallway this week. It's Friday. We're about to go home for the weekend. I get a text message from a teacher that says, hey, this one kid rubbed soap in this other kid's eye. I'm like, it's like Friday. Like, why do I have to deal with this? So I go pull this fourth grader out, of, out into the hallway. And I was like, hey, buddy. I mean, he was terrified. I mean, just like, oh, it's like Friday. I'm almost to the weekend. I got to talk to the principal. So we're talking. I was like, hey, buddy, like, can you tell me why this other kid has soap in his eye? And uh, he was like, yeah, I was in the bathroom and got some soap on my hand. And I like tripped and fell and like my hand like went in his eye. And I was like, what? And he was like, yeah. And I was like, you tripped it? I was like, you weren't playing around and messing around? And he was like, I was playing around and messing around. And I was like, yeah. I was like, hey, let's just stop right now. You just be honest with me. Like, let's just be honest the rest of the way. Okay. Have you apologized to him? Yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You've gone to him and said you're sorry? No, sir. I haven't, I haven't done that. Right? And so I'm just like, man, like this kid's like in protective mode. Right? And, and we all get to that point where we're, we know we're wrong but we're wanting to shape the situation to where maybe we're not as wrong as, as it's being presented, right? Um, we go into that self-protective mode. I remember, um, that's, that's where like we're trying to avoid the consequences, but we're also sometimes guilty of like being deceitful in how we would promote ourselves to gain advantages over others. I remember, um, it's been years now, but it, it was a guy who was a head football coach at Georgia Tech, and he had the opportunity to move to go be the head coach at Notre Dame. I mean, he was hired, press conferences scheduled. I mean, we're, we're ready to do this. And then it was determined to be an error on his resume, that he had lied. He, he, didn't, he didn't have some of the things that he said he had. And, and he got fired from the new job, couldn't go back to the old job, all because he had tried to promote himself in such a way that it was false, right? He wanted to gain an advantage. And, and we have to kind of step back and ask ourselves, are we guilty of any of this? Are we guilty of gossip and slander where we would try to tear other people down to make ourselves look better? Are we guilty of uh, trying to sway the truth in such a way when we're guilty of something so that the consequences don't come to bear on us like they should? Um, we want to be known as truth, truth tellers, people who are committed to truth because the Gentiles aren't, right? That, that's, that's common amongst the Gentile world to be uh, self-protective, even if it means being false, to be self-protective, and, and the scriptures call us to be totally different than that. Um, number three, we want to deal with our anger in a timely manner. He says, put away falsehood, let each, each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So there's this sinful action that we're to replace, and that's sinful anger, because he says we can be angry without sin, and we talked extensively about that when we were going through the Gospel of John, we talked about how Jesus was angry at the, the actions taking place in the temple, and we should very much be angry towards sin and, and angry towards situations where sin is being tolerated. Here he's talking about us, though, um, removing, un, uh, or removing sinful type of anger from our life. Uh, the positive action that we would then install is to resolve your anger by seeking reconciliation rather than retaliation. I told you that we were going to Ephesians because it helped give us clarity on how to live out some of the things that we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. So we go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift, right? The idea there is that when situations spring up in our life where our reaction is to be angry because we've been, we've been wronged, right? And we're probably very right to feel angry at the fact that sin has occurred and we've been wronged, but we're to do something with those emotions. We're to do something with those feelings. We're to do something by taking action to resolve that anger, to not let the sun set upon our anger, to instead seek reconciliation. Because here's the thing, if we don't, we're far more prone to seek retaliation. If we allow our anger to fester, Paul tells us we give an opportunity to the devil. What's the, what's the opportunity for the devil that he would love to seize upon? That's to allow our anger to turn into bitterness and rage and malice to where we're no longer seeking reconciliation, we're seeking retaliation, right? We've been wronged and that makes us angry and we want to do something about it now. It's contrary to the golden rule, right? We treat others the ways that we want to be treated. We want to be sought out for reconciliation when we've done something wrong or we've done something to somebody else. We give that same treatment to others. We don't give an opportunity to the devil for our sin and our anger to fester and be, to, to grow and to become a bigger issue than it has to be. Instead, to go and to deal with it, uh, to resolve it, to give no opportunity to the devil. The theological reason is that we want to avoid giving the enemy further opportunity to lead us into deeper sins. I mean, anger, if, if not dealt with, can lead to murder, Right? And if not murder, it can certainly lead to a lot more damage even before that. We resolve our anger by seeking reconciliation. Number four, we do our work honestly with a goal of generosity. He says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he have, may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. The sinful action to replace is stealing, focusing on what you don't have and using evil ways to obtain it. Instead, Paul calls us, the gospel calls us to work hard with excellence and to give. Don't deprive others for your good, but share with others from your goods. Let me say that again. Don't deprive others for your good. Don't, don't take from others to benefit yourself. Instead, share with others from your own good. Share, from other, share with others from your own uh, ways of prospering because you've worked hard, you've done the work, you've, you've done it honestly, and now you can turn around and be generous. Again, we don't read this and think, oh, this isn't, um, this isn't me. You know, we, we, don't, we don't read this and think that, oh, this, this needs further proof. Like, we, we get it. We know that we shouldn't steal, and yet we don't always appropriate that to how we may be guilty of this, right? We have conversations with our, our middle school students, and I, we, I know we've got students that are listening now. Like, we, we have to fight to help our kids understand that plagiarism is stealing, right? It's taking credit for somebody else's work. Um, it's letting somebody else do the hard work, and then you come in and say, hey, I had a football game last night. Can I borrow your math homework and copy it so I can turn it into my teacher? Like, like we, have a, we have a bad moral compass amongst our students, at least, and I'm sure this is true at other schools, where that doesn't register as stealing. It just doesn't register. It just registers as a friend being a good friend to me and helping me out because I had a lot of stuff going on in my life. 
right? And, and I'll pull kids into my office when we catch them in this, and I'll tell them, I say, hey, I'd much rather you take a zero on that math homework and, 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 and maintain your integrity, because long term, as these situations grow in your life, for you to choose to do the right thing and not steal from somebody else, right? Um, but I was even thinking as I'm reading, like, how much better for our students to not steal from each other, but to do the work so that they can then turn around and help somebody else, right? Like, you come in and you're like, I don't know how to do the math homework because I didn't do it, but I'm going to copy this other person's and then turn it in and get credit for it, but I have no knowledge of how to do it myself and certainly couldn't help somebody else do it, right? The Bible tells us to work hard, to do it well, to do it honestly, not just so that we're providing for ourselves or providing for our family, but so that we can help others who are in need too. The theological reason is that we want to become givers instead of always being takers. Zacchaeus is a great example of this. Here's a guy who had earned his wealth dishonestly. The gospel comes to him. He learns Christ. He hears from Christ. He is exposed to Christ. I would love, I wish one of the gospels would record the conversation that happened over that lunch table between Jesus and Zacchaeus. Because you take a guy who was anything but Christian He eats a meal with Jesus, and he comes out just giving his wealth away, making it right. He's been dishonest, and now he goes and makes it right. Unbelievable response to the gospel. Such a testimony to us that we're to work honestly with a goal of being generous to others. Number five, use your words to advance the faith of others. Use your words to advance the faith of others. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. This is certainly a passage that we could use to say, hey, we shouldn't be using uh, cuss words or, or bad words, or we shouldn't be talking about inappropriate things, right? Like that's absolutely true and certainly a text that we can go to, to to reinforce that. But like we've been saying, not only do we remove the the evil action, we replace it with the holy action. And the holy action is we use words that are encouraging, that build others up, that give grace to those who hear, who ultimately advance individuals in their own faith and sanctification, that we're, we're strategic with the words that we use to build other people up, not to tear them down or not to corrupt them with the types of things that we talk about. So we certainly remove the foul and unhelpful language from our vocabulary. The idea here really is that we don't, we don't be sickening in our speech. That corrupting talk, it's a word that's used in other places in the New Testament for like rotten fish or rotten fruit. Man, I've experienced both of those things. Um, One of my first jobs was working at Adams Farm on the way through Peachtree City towards Fayetteville. Um, And I remember one of my first responsibilities was picking cantaloupe in the field. I mean, it's hot, it's summer, uh, it's sticky, and you're picking up cantaloupe. And I remember like picking up cantaloupe that were rotten, and you think it's a solid, nice piece of fruit, and you reach down and grab it, and it just bursts in your hand. And the smell that comes forth is awful. I mean, a rotten cantaloupe is disgusting. Uh, I love to fish, and I love to use real bait when I fish. And I'm a terrible individual at cleaning my, my cooler out in a proper manner, when I'm done fishing and I let that stuff sit too long. And when I go to clean my cooler out, you open it up and the stench of like rotten shrimp and rotten bait is just awful, right? I see both of those being illustrated here when it talks about the type of words that we use, right? 
we, we are corrupt in our talk, sickening in our speech. And, and Paul's saying, hey, this has no place in the life of a believer. The words that we use, the types of words that we use, but even the purpose for how we use our words ought to be totally different. That we're building others up. We're advancing their faith by giving grace to those who hear us speak to them. We want to partner with the Holy Spirit in his efforts versus grieving him in his work because it's right after this that he says in verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is given to us to advance our faith, to move us forward, to to grow us. And when we speak this way, particularly to other people, we're working against his work. We're grieving him in the process. And Paul says we shouldn't be this way. We should be different. Our words should be different. Use constructive words that seek to edify and build others up. Words that aim to encourage. And then lastly, number six, we treat others in ways that reflect the gospel. He says in verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. We're to get rid of those resentful attitudes and those resentful actions that would work against somebody. Fostering bitterness that leads to wrath and anger and and a reaction from us that would seek to attack others. Instead, we're to be kind to one another. The replacement action there is to exhibit kindness and forgiveness. The theological reason behind this is that we've experienced forgiveness ourselves, right? That we want to be a visual for the gospel as we model what forgiveness looks like towards those who wrong us. If Christ can forgive us, then we should be able to forgive anything that comes our way as well because we have sinned so greatly against him. We treat others in ways that reflect the gospel. Again, this isn't an all-inclusive list, but this is what Paul's talking about when he says the old way has been done away with, the new way has been put on, to live differently to be committed to truth, to be committed to uh, dealing with your anger and not reacting with it, to work honestly and not take from others, but give to others, to use your words to advance others' faith, not to tear them down or, or to uh, corrupt them in any way, to be a model of what the gospel looks like, to be ones who forgive and show kindness towards others. Our identity truth to remember is that every Christian is called to interact with others in ways that are truthful forgiving, generous, and encouraging. Every Christian is called to interact with others in ways that are truthful, forgiving, generous, and encouraging. Some application questions for you to ponder as we leave today. Is there any situation in your life that needs to be corrected with truth? Is there any situation that you know of actively right now in your life where you have been dishonest, false, uh, you have deceived And you need to correct that with truth. Uh, You may have a situation like that where you know you haven't been honest with the situation and you need to to correct it. You need to be known as um, a a truth communicator in that situation. Number two, is there any unresolved anger that needs to be reconciled? Any forgiveness that needs to be extended? Is there broken fellowship that you have with somebody where your anger has, has been tolerated for far too long and the door is open right now for there to be further sin issues there because it hasn't been dealt with. Is there any anger that you need to resolve and reconcile? Any forgiveness that needs to be extended? Number three, is there any dishonest gain that needs to be rectified? Have you benefited or gained through some dishonest manner that needs to be, needs to be confessed and needs to be rectified? 
uh, any generosity that needs to be extended. Maybe you haven't taken anything. Maybe you've been earning your, your keep honestly, but maybe you've you found yourself hanging on to stuff in ways that you didn't previously, and you need to kind of open your arms and hands once again to extend some of what God has given to you to help those around you that are in need. And then number four, are there any words that need to be respoken? Maybe you uh, are being convicted even now of the Holy Spirit, of things that you have spoken in a harsh tone or in such a way where it was meant to tear others down versus to build them up. And uh, rather than grieving the Holy Spirit, let's respond as we talked about last week, let's don't have hard, calloused hearts. Let's don't hear this stuff and then do nothing with it. Let's be tenderhearted. Let's be uh, quick to respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit and to take action if there's action that needs to be taken. Are we being truthful? Are we dealing with our anger? Are we being honest in the ways that we gain? Um, are we speaking words in such a way where we're upbuilding and uplifting others around us? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for these truths. We thank you that you have called us through the gospel to be different, but not just called us to do it. You've empowered us to be that way as well. You haven't just given us a list of rules and laws to obey. Instead, you've given us your Holy Spirit. You have washed us clean with your blood. You have been righteous and perfect where we could never be. And you've called us now through the power of your Holy Spirit to walk differently, to live differently than the lost world. And God, we're praying that we would be those type of people. That as we leave today, as we go back to our places of influence, our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, God, help us to be different. Help us to talk differently. Help us to act differently. Help us to interact differently with each other. God, help us to be people who are so committed to truth that lying is never named amongst us, that when we're confronted for doing wrong things, that we take ownership and responsibility for it. When we're seeking to, to advance and to move up in certain situations, that we're not dishonest about the things that we've done or the things that we're capable of, that we would trust you to promote us when needed. Um, God, help us to be uh, honest in the ways that we handle our money. Um, God, help us to be generous with the ways that we handle our money too. God, as we get frustrated and angry with each other, help us not to foster and, and hold on to that to where it takes root in our life and creates bitterness towards each other. God, help us to confess it. Help us to reconcile it. Help us to not even let the sun go down upon our anger, but to reach out for reconciliation. God, help us to speak words that are encouraging and uplifting. God, help us not to be cynical God, even as we seek to joke in our sarcasm, God, help us to be helpful. Help us to encourage those that need to be encouraged. Help us to treat everyone as individuals who need to be encouraged, to build them up and to lift them up through the words that we choose to use. Help our, help our language to be different than the lost world. Help us to value each other and show the value that we have for each other in the words that we speak to each other. Convict us where we, where we need to be changed in this area, God. These are... These are areas that we readily accept as things that should be true about us, but we're quick to gloss over where we may need to hear this message. And so God, I pray that you'd expose our hearts to where we need to hear it. And God, we pray that you'd change us where we still need to be changed. Help us to remember the gospel call that our old self has been put off and our new self has been put on. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. 
Again, that's www.sovhope.org.